You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. To Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he loves to fly, and it shows. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. Guys, please keep your tray tables and seat backs in the upright position. Wait till the captain turns off the no seatbelt sign. Right. How you doing? How am I? I I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> you ever get like a phantom cut? Like you look down at your hand and you're bleeding. You're like, oh, I don't. Remember that at all? Absolutely. I have one on my eyelid. In your eyelid? Yeah, I don't know what happened. I was taking a shower this morning, and as I'm washing my face, I was like, oh, that feels kind of odd. And then, like, I look in the mirror, and I have, like, a cut on my eyelid. Like, you're taking a shower, like, after you woke up in the morning, right? This isn't, like, after a long day at work. Right, yeah, when I wake up, yeah. No, no, it's before I woke up, yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I must have gone all kind of like all Freddy Krueger on myself in my sleep. Yeah, uh, I'm going to have to like maybe like wear mittens when I sleep or something or I don't know, maybe cut my fingernails or something. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I sliced my eyelid open. Look, take it from so, me. If you don't have mittens, you can always just use an old pair of socks. Yeah, that's going to smell awesome. So, so now like I discussed in the past that my eyesight is rapidly failing. So I have to wear my little reading glasses and stuff. But now I got so much antibiotic because you can't put an eye, you know, you can't put like a a bandaid on your eye, you know? Right. No, I mean, you can, but (laughs) people are going to have a question or questions for you. Yeah. They're either going to have a lot of questions or one very specific question over and over and over again. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I I mean, there's a way to get around that. So yeah, I wear an eye patch like a, I was gonna oh, say. You, wear, you, you wear one yeah. one big bandage and a special hat, and yep. you you put a parrot on your shoulder, and yep. then yeah. So instead of getting like the same question over and over again, you get the same horrible joke over and over again it's, by people true. that think they're hilarious. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in lieu, in lieu of a band aid on my eye, which would feel great pulling it off, but pull the whole eyelid right off. <laughs> ah! <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, so I have like, kind of like uh, an off-brand Neosporin oh, smudged all over my uh... dollar store Neosporin. Oh no, no, no! It's just called Nosporin. You can't afford it. <laughs> no, I I have work first aid kit Neosporin. Oh, I'm oh not, yes. I'm not paying for that. Packed for you in 1968. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna paraphrase Henry Rollins when I say sex, drugs, and office supplies should never be paid for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on a side note, if you find that you have to, like, rebandage your eye because tomorrow you gouge it even deeper while you're having your, I don't know, dreams about gouging out your own eyes, don't ever shave off an eyebrow. Have you ever shaved off an eyebrow, Bill? 
No, but I work at a haunted house, and there was a guy that like shaved off his eyebrows for a character one mm -hmm. year. I was like, never in the span of this earth ever do that again. I did it in college as part of a Halloween costume, and it took a year to grow all the way back. Yeah. It was yep. not yeah. good. Yep. It's a mistake you make once. Yep. Yes. And then you <laughs> what try. What was your costume? I was the Terminator, and I had shaved off part of my eyebrows so I could put like tinfoil latex oh, to yeah. my head. Or spirit yeah. gum to my head. Yeah. Costume was cool. After Effects, the costume, considerably less so. <laughs> Were you in England at the time? I was. I was in yeah, England. Yeah. I was about to say, you should have called your buddy Bill because there's ways of doing that without having to shave your right. Yes. Well, now I know. All right. So, uh, before we get the show started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Do you like... The Guinness Book of World Records. I do, even though I haven't looked at a physical Guinness Book of World Records in probably forty years. Yeah, um, I always thought it was interesting. We always had like the you know the the Bible size one around the house, and I always wanted to get in there. You know, I used to practice doing the coin catching and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, there is a young man. Well, he's not young anymore. He's sixty-seven years old now. His name is Ashrita Furman. He was born Keith. But he changed his name to Ashrita for oh, tax I purposes, I, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> It's an unpronounceable symbol. Yeah. <laughs> He's trying to get uh, out of his contract with Columbia Records. Yes. Yep. So, <laughs> so he was, uh, he wanted to get into the Guinness Book of World Records, but he wasn't really very athletic. He is currently in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most world records. Oh, okay. How many world records does our friend, I'm going to call him Keith, how many records does our friend Keith currently own? He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for holding a X amount of world records. How many is that? And he's not an athletic guy, so it's not like he keeps getting the same record for like the high jump or something. Right. So, I'll so give you a hint. One of them, one of his, his first official world record was he did 27,000 jumping jacks. I think that qualifies as athletic. Uh, I would say, yeah, sure. 27,000 anyway. jumping jacks is athletic. I do 27 jumping jacks, and I'm like, you know what? Screw, screw this. Uh, <laughs> exactly. okay. He's athletic now, sure. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, athletic. After that, he was like, Mr. Universe. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll have an answer by the end of the show, but um, All right. maybe guess Mr. Howell's first name. So this is the week beginning May the 16th, and whose turn is it? Yours? It is my turn right. to go first. Go ahead. All right. May 16th, 1969. Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey of The Who get charged with assault. Did you know that, Bill? They what were, did they do? So so they were, they were playing at the Fillmore East, and they were doing Tommy. That's the tour for Tommy, 1969. Yeah. And the building next door started on fire and was burning down, and smoke was billowing in through the vents of the Fillmore East. So the cops came and were like, everybody out. And they went on stage to take the microphone and say, everybody has to leave because the building next door is on fire. And they took the microphone right. away from Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend started kicking and, pit and hitting the cop. So he and Roger oh, wow. started Pete fighting Townsend with the cop on stage. <laughs> they got themselves arrested. Yeah. I was about to say, you grab the microphone out of Roger Daltrey's hand. You're not long for this earth. Right. He is like, he's short. He's like five, six or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But I read Pete Townsend's autobiography and 
He was like the Wu-Tang Clan, man. Roger Dolce was nothing to fuck with. That yeah. guy was, he's tough. Yeah, Yeah, I, I read stories from uh, from Keith Moon where he said, like, Roger Dolce hit me so hard, I thought I saw Jesus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those time machine, like, trips there. If I had, like, unlimited DeLorean and plutonium, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh I would. That's something I'd like to see. I'd like to see that incident. Uh, I would go back if I could to see that show, but not there. I'd go so that I wouldn't get thrown out because the building next door was on fire. I'd want to see all of Tommy if I could. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, all things being equal, uh, I would definitely like to go back and see the Who at their the pinnacle of their like late sixties, early nineteen seventies hard rock days. Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, moving on to May the 17th of 1900. The first copies of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum are first published. Yeah. I've seen pictures of the manuscript. It's beautiful. Like, there's illustrations all through it and stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, I'm actually looking at some pictures of it right now. Yeah, the first edition was only 10,000 copies, and it sold out, you know, within about six months. Which in these enlightened times, that's not really that big of a deal, right? But in 1900, that's a that's an enormous deal. Yeah, that's a big print run for sure. Yeah, it was a, adapted into a play two years later, and then you know the movie that we all know and love uh, in 1939. Kids' books were way different back then. Yeah, they were. That's for sure. The, this is the first book, right? Because there's a whole series of them, right? Didn't he keep writing yes. them for like 10 years or something after? I forget how many books there are. I think there's a lot. I think there's like 16 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, there's a Hey, man, if you you know what? As somebody who writes, if you can land something that the audience will pay for, yep. just keep writing it. You can right. be just like the guy in Misery, like who has that one fan who's like, write book 85 of this series. <laughs> yeah. If it keeps you making money or if it keeps you like not getting hobbled, yeah, right. keeps doing it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. You ever read any of these books? I've never read the original L. Frank Baum stories, no, but I have seen the film oh, yeah. adaptations. I read the original. I read The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Dark. Very dark. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Like the Tin Woodsman just like straight up like kills those monkeys with his axe. Yeah. Right. He does not mess around. Yeah. And I read a subsequent book, and I don't remember what it was. A lot of the story ended up becoming that Return to Oz movie. Yeah, with Fruza Balk. Yeah, I saw yeah, that, that in the cinema. Yeah, that freaking horror fest. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was good. I think that movie suffered because it was super loyal to the source material and was so different than what people remember from the 1939 Judy Garland film. Because it's scaring the shit out of all your, your, your kids, right. you know? Well, look, kids Why need to be scared. Why are you showing it's like a punishment movie, as you <laughs> like to call it? Yeah, yeah, punishment. I don't want to go to the movies, Mom. They're going to get in there and see the Return to Oz. Yeah. Uh, that scarecrow is just terrifying in that movie. It's so creepy looking. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it was. I think it's a fun one though. Um, that's uh, yeah. that's Henson, right? That's all Henson's guys. I believe. Yeah, I believe though. Yeah, I don't think it was like a Henson directed kind of movie, but I think it was Henson's workshop that made yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. That movie played a thousand million times on cable right after it came out, too. Yeah, you know, I didn't see it until just, like, maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. And, like, I couldn't believe how dark it was. I was, I mean, being a horror fan, I loved it. But this isn't a fun, you know, heartfelt musical. This is... Ah! <laughs> yeah, it's one of those, you're like, is this a kid's movie? <laughs> With that sort of weird upward inflection at the end. I mean, all right, but it seems like it's just a little dark for them. Well, you just transitioned from that film now, like, into Hellboy. I think that's the jumping in point. <laughs> All right, so what do we got for the 18th? 
May 18th, 1994, the genetically altered Flavor Saver Tomato is approved for sale by the Food and Drug Administration. It's the first time or the first whole food that's developed through biotechnology and genetic engineering that's made available to U.S. consumers. I am going to say as a word nerd that Flavor Saver is spelled F-L-A-V-R-S-A-V-R, which would immediately prevent me from ever buying them knowingly. (laughs) They didn't want to confuse it with what sexy men call their mustaches. Yeah, sure. As I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, well, aren't haven't they just in general been genetically modified to be tomatoes the way that we know them or different variations of tomatoes through selective breeding and, and other domestication? Yeah, like without getting controversial about it, because like I don't really know where I fall on this. I know that world hunger is a problem. And I know that world hunger would be a much bigger problem if it wasn't for genetically altering foods. There's a, you know, it's a lot easier to feed people like corn, for an example. Corn is the biggest crop in this country, if not the world. And legit corn that's never been genetically modified or selective breeding or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is inedible. You can't eat that. You know, you can eat it. You just can't digest it. Take it from me. Right. (laughs) And bananas, you know, real bananas that aren't cultivated and stuff like that are way different. They're super tiny. They're not like what you think of as bananas. Well, I I think that, you know, the point of the 1994 flavor saver tomato is that the genetic engineering was done at the genetic level using manipulation by inserting genes and turning things on and off in the DNA strand of the actual tomato. Right. Which is the short, short cut version to doing the sort of selective breeding and other things that make other tomatoes other tomatoes. And there were some that were bred in the 1970s to be able to withstand being picked by a mechanical picking machine. So they were bred to be thicker and have a thicker, mealier, tougher skin and flesh so that they wouldn't just turn into tomato sauce as they were being harvested. And you can still buy those tomatoes. It's like eating a softball. But they were meant so that they could be picked a mass and not suffer the same sort of fate as ripe or garden tomatoes. <laughs> and it's like seedless watermelons, too. It's like, what were you waiting for? Right. You know? Let's make something that, that we can't ever grow without having a mess with it. You know? Yeah. You have, like, the spinster of the watermelon genetics because then they're never, never going to reproduce. They don't have any seeds. Right. But... The watermelons that you have that have seeds in them, well, I don't. You ever plant a watermelon? I haven't. I have never intentionally planted a watermelon. <laughs> it's this weird thing, like it's not driven so much by the "Hey, can we do this?" kind of science. It's driven more by the "Hey, we can get this to people for less money." Science, which right. I don't have a problem with either way. I don't have a dog in that fight. I just think it's interesting that we make the distinction between I'm saying air quoted genetically engineered foodstuffs and. Any other food stuff uh, right. is pretty much genetically engineered to be cultivated by people and eaten. We're not out sort of scraping, you know, willow bark off of willow trees and looking for winter wheat in fields. We grow it <laughs> and cultivate it so that it yields higher and it lasts longer, grows earlier and stays later. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> All right. Moving on. May the 19th, 1992. Your friend and mine, Dan Quayle, friend of the show. <laughs> uh, we try not to get too political around here, but Dan Quayle sure did. Dan Quayle criticizes TV character Murphy Brown's moral values 
for having a child out of wedlock. Oh, joy. Go um, get him, Danny. Go Pick get him, on Danny. a fictional character. Worst part of this whole thing was that he doubled down on it and he challenged Animal from the Muppet Show to a drum battle and lost. <laughs> and then he suggested that the Teletubbies all sprung from the same family, even though clearly they all have different shapes on the top of their head. So he's clearly not uh, hes not all there with regard to understanding the difference between reality and what he sees on TV. You don't want to be in a movie theater with him during like a horror movie. They went up the stairs! Yeah. Don't look in the closet! <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's definitely a literalist, but, you know, what are you going to do? He's the guy that it keeps appending an E to the potato. Yep, the most illiterate literalist we, we could find. Let me say that again, because that's hard. Okay. The most illiterate literalist we could find. Yay, I said it. I think you could call him an illiteralist. Or huh? I could have saved time and said huh? an illiteralist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Dan Quill, your malaprovisms never get old. Go get him, tiger. What do we have for the 20th? May 20th, 1873, a guy named Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis patented the first blue jeans held together in parts by copper rivets, which they did until the 1990s. Whenever you bought 501 jeans up until the 1990s, they had copper rivets in them. And uh-huh. I think it was like 1940 or 1950s when they took the copper rivets out of the crotch because they used to be that hold the crotch panels in, which... What? Yeah. Oh, no, that's a real thing. You may find yourself squatting in front of a campfire, cowboy style, <laughs> and all of a sudden... Your biscuits are burning, and it's because you've got two little copper rivets that are red hot um, <laughs> pushing against your, you know, your long johns and the skin underneath. Do you have a favorite kind of jeans, Bill? I mean, Levi's was like the standard when we were in school. And so, well, first of all, I went to Catholic school, so we weren't allowed to wear blue jeans, you know? So that those are the pants from hell. Hell pants, yeah. Bill. That's what Catholic school says. The Catholics and the Soviets had in common. They just had a ban on blue jeans. Much like whenever I got out of high school, my mom didn't like me wearing concert shirts in school. She wanted me to, quote unquote, look nice. So once I got out of school, that's all I wanted to wear was concert shirts. And to this day, that's basically, I just wear t-shirts, you know. Getting out of Catholic school, all I wanted to wear was jeans. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I don't really like them now. I kind of wear them when I have to, but I'd rather not wear them. I used to like the 501s. I used to like the button flies. That's what I buy for my, I'm saying nice pants. My jeans that I buy and I'm like, I bought new jeans. I bought new jeans. That's 501s because I'm in my brain, I'm still 14. And that's still cool. Even though they're not really cool anymore. They're just expensive. You know, my go-to for good jeans is is the 501s, even though I, I don't know that they have the same cachet that they used to. Go put your nice jeans on. Go put the good ones on. We're going to grandma's. If you ever look at the like the back panel, like a, where it has the size mm-hmm. on it, there is a picture of a pair of jeans. The picture depicts a pair of jeans with a horse on either side, kind of like clamped to the jeans, like pulling them apart. Yep. But they're not pulling apart, implying that the jeans are so strong. That if you attach them to horses like that, they wouldn't be able to pull them apart. Well, I saw on whatever TV show, probably like Mythbusters or whatever, they put that to the test, right? Those jeans lasted .000 seconds. They just instantly just ripped 
right apart. Uh, They're not going to withstand a horse or two horses in that matter. What's kind of yeah, cool? It like, wasn't even a thing. It's just <laughs> gone. Just gone. Yes. yes. Nice try. For, well, it's, it's like nobody could like do the kind of myth busting back in 1870 when, you know, they would have had to, to make that to make that go away as far as a logo claim. There is still like you can you sometimes like will find a news story where someone's found a bunch of old prospector gear in in the caves, you know, former mine shafts yeah. and stuff out in California and there'll be jeans from like 1880 or 1790 that they find still intact, you know, that were that are originally Levi's and I know Levi's the corporation tends to try and buy those back and they have like a museum and display them and stuff. And the crotch rivets are still hot to the well, touch. I bet they are. Like, oh, that one's, <laughs> this one's got her hair burned into it. Ooh, don't touch those. Um, Ew. All right, moving on. May the 21st, 1981. Everybody's favorite sequel, a confusingly called Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, opens oh. in theaters. That Debbie Downer of Star Wars movies. I mean, I'm everybody. that's everybody's favorite out of the series. Not everybody, but like most people will say that's their favorite one out of the entire series. Yeah. But it's, it's it's the one that, that stands the least alone, though, I think. It yeah, definitely it requires t- you to have to have watched Star Wars to really get the story and figure out yeah, what's going on in the beginning. Yeah, that's the Star Wars movie you watch. You're like, I don't know what the hell's going on here. Yeah. Right? Who's that guy? Yep. It's like me watching the fifth Harry <laughs> Potter movie. You know, in the cinema, like, I haven't watched the other four, and I only read the first book, like, who's that guy again? Why are you glaring at me like I'm making noise, you know? Um, There's so many, like, epic scenes and all that, though. I mean, the Snowwalker sequence is just magnificent, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's that's a good one. Like, in video games, those were always my favorite levels with the Snowwalker sequences. That was one of my favorite uh, of the Atari 2600 games was the Empire Strikes Back cartridge that was like one of the only good atari 2600 games I, i'm that not game? i'm not saying that's not true but i'm just saying that yeah. was again for one that i had that i played the hell out of that was one i yep. one of them i have an emulator that has all 500 and some change of the video games that were released for the atari 2600 including the x-rated ones right honestly that system had like eight total good games and empire strikes back i can still play that game right now it's great it's a great game yep. yeah that was a fun one one of the things that i that i like about it too is it 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 gave lucas the ability because he had so much money he was flush with cash by then right. to spend it on special effects techniques i think it gets lost in the it gets lost in the discussion of the films but that whole sequence with the asteroid field and the Millennium Falcon flying through the asteroid field is probably the best space flight sequence in all of the early films. It's so, so exciting and so well done. Whenever you find out little things about the movie, like one of the asteroids is like a potato. (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. One of the asteroids is a potato. And I guess if you freeze frame... Like at the right point, you'll see one of them is like a sneaker. Oh, I'll have to I'll have to mess around with yeah. that and, and look. Yeah. yeah, I had no idea. That's funny. And then you get all like the nitpicky people that are like, yeah, in, in an asteroid field, asteroids aren't that close together. So <laughs> flying through an asteroid field is not dangerous at all. They're all super far apart. Well, yeah. I think what I like so much about it is that. It wasn't until after that film came out that that sort of became a visual trope in science fiction, space science fiction. Uh Those scenes have been duplicated hundreds of times in way lesser films. But some that are very good, 
but it always always goes back to to the fir- that very first time it was really done which was in empire you saw it in the theater i did yes i did too and i remember right at the very end whenever you know the the cliffhanger happens and it just ends and my father's my father wasn't one of those people that stuck around to watch the credits like we like i do he was like Voom, and, it's, and it's like all right let's go and i was like what do you mean let's go that can't be. That cannot be the end of the movie. That was the first time I'd ever seen a cliffhanger ending. You know. Yep. And I was like, that can't be. Like, no, they went to Luke and went that. They, they, this, what about Han? What about everybody? My bro- father's like, nope, that's the end of the movie. Let's you go. Gotta, you got to wait a couple years for the rest of this one. Yeah. I only remember seeing this one. I mean, I know I saw it more than once in the cinema. I don't know that my dad went to see this one with us. I think this is one of the ones where he dropped me and my brothers off and was like, take your brothers to the movies. Very, very, very good one. Yep, absolutely. Uh, unlike, what's <laughs> our next day, Jeff? <laughs> May 22nd, 1985. The 14th James Bond film, A View to a Kill. The last one to star Roger Moore, also with Grace Jones and Christopher Walken. That movie did not Walken. star Roger Moore. That movie starred Roger Moore's stunt double. <laughs> By the time this movie came out, even Roger Moore was saying, like, are, are you sure I should be in this movie? He was, <laughs> he was like advanced in age for the James Bond character and almost all of the stunts that he had to do as James Bond were done by another guy because Roger Moore's like I yeah I'm not skiing I don't ski I'm gonna break my hip <laughs> Roger Moore was like are you sure I should be in this movie and Tanya Roberts is like yeah are you sure he should be in this movie right. I have to have sex with a guy that's old enough to be my grandfather <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that like oh James Oh, look, your teeth <laughs> fell out, you know. This one's sort of well-known in that it was a big budget release for 85. It was a big deal when this movie came out. And it yep. was because it had Christopher Walken, Grace Jones, and the aforementioned Tanya Roberts in it. Christopher Walken is right at the height of his early career. Yeah, He was just coming in. He had done like Deer Hunter and a couple of other really big films that had projected him up. And the film that preceded this one was my favorite of Roger Moore's films, Octopussy, which no one remembers because no one was in it except for Roger Moore. It was like Maude Adams and and the guy that played the villain in Swamp Thing. <laughs> and this one was like, nah, there's all this star power. They've got all this money. And by the time they got it off the ground, like Roger Moore was uh, clearly uh, had aged out of the part. If you go back and watch it, man, it's you can absolutely see every single scene where it's not Roger Moore. Which is like eighty yep. percent of the time he's, he's on screen doing that, stuff. That movie though has probably, uh, arguably, the best James Bond theme song with oh, Duran Duran's "View to a Kill." I think that one, "View to a Kill," is probably my favorite. "Live and yep. Let Die" is my second favorite, and "Goldfinger" is my third favorite. Oh, what about "Thunderball" from Tom Jones? No. No, 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 don't like that one. The the Tom Jones one is just so over the top. Yeah, they, they all kind of are, but the, like Shirley Bassey has this, it's almost like Broadway, it's almost parody when she does Goldfinger, but the thing with this one was this was, Roger Moore was like, I'm not making any more of these movies after this one, and he was done. And then the, the search was on for the next one. Who was going to be James Bond next? Oh, what a segue. We're going to start our celebrity birthdays, Jeff, because check this out. May the 16th, 1953, Mr. James Bond himself, Pierce Bronson. Ah, the guy who was almost the next James Bond and then had to wait. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Bronson was going to be, he was like a natural for it, but he was tied to the show Remington Steel and couldn't get out of his contract. 
Right. And you look at that guy. That guy's like born to be James he Bond. Was, yeah, he looked as like, of course he's. He looked like, you know, actually, he looks just like, if you go back and look at Remington Steel, he looks exactly like Roger Moore in The Saint, which is why he ended up as James Bond in 1970. <laughs> and Pierce Brosnan couldn't get out of his contract. They ended up hiring Timothy Dalton for three, let's just call them mediocre James Bond films. And then he split and Pierce Brosnan took over and made more mediocre James Bond. Yeah, he did uh, GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, and Die Another Day. Uh, Most famously, probably going to be GoldenEye for the the one really good game for the Nintendo 64. Yes, and the film that introduced Famke Jansen to the world. That's all I remember about that film, (laughs) is Famke Jansen was in it. And it had like a satellite with a ray gun on it. He was also in Mamma Mia and Mrs. Doubtfire. So, moving on. May 17th, 1959. The original singer, the deep-throated singer from the original lineup of Iron Maiden is born in Chingford, London. And his records, Killers and Iron Maiden, you can definitely see where the band was going, mm-hmm. but he couldn't get him there. You know, growing up in uh, in the 80s being you know, and being in high school in the 80s and all that, Iron Maiden was like the quintessential heavy metal band, you know. And everybody, and those big albums in the '80s, like Number of the Beast and Peace of Mind, and Power Slave. You know, while we were in school, I mean, those were must-haves and all that. And everybody loved Bruce Dickinson, and well enough they should. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care for the Paul Diano Iron Maiden until much later on. Yeah, you know? it took a and long that, time for me. But now, to... as as an adult, I have a really big appreciation for those songs. Oh, I love the first Iron Maiden record now. And again, I did yeah. not like it when I was a kid and, and Number of the Beast and Power Slave and Somewhere in Time were all out. I always yeah. thought it sounded like 70s rock. It doesn't. It sounds like it sounds a lot like Iron Maiden. It sounds a lot like Number of the Beast. It's just I yeah. couldn't get over the sound of Paul Diano's voice. But I love his range. When I go back and listen to like The Phantom of the Opera now, that's one of my favorite tracks for their whole catalog. And that's off their first record. Yeah, it's almost to the level of almost being punk rock. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think they had a lot of punk rock influence at that time. Yes, I think so. Before they actually, you know, they found their own niche. Yep, agreed. He's still active. He's still doing gigs and stuff. Yeah, still playing out, man. Rock it out, Paul. So probably like, oh, I need another loaf of bread. I guess I'll do a gig. Get some some extra money. It's fish and chips night. I got to go play. (laughs) All right, May the 18th, 1970, former Saturday Night Live alum and actress, filmmaker, and Sarah Palin doppelganger, Miss <laughs> Tina Fey. Nice, yes. Uh, writer of Mean Girls and writer of many, many, probably thousands of sketches for Saturday Night Live. Yep. Uh, very talented. I can't say anything like bad about her, but it's like I like her, but I, I'm not a huge fan. Does that make sense? It, it makes sense, yeah. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell. She wasn't in every sketch that she wrote, you know? Right. She's, she wrote sketches for the other players on that show as well. Her output sure. is vast. She did that show 30 Rock, which was pretty funny. Yeah. And that she she wrote episodes for, too, and directed some of. Like, So she does a lot of behind-the-camera the stuff as well as what she does in front. So I think that yeah. it, like her multi-talents sort of spread out and make it hard to pin down like where she's really best known. I think... I liked I liked Thirty Rock a lot because it was a good ensemble cast that was sure. consistent as opposed to like Saturday Night Live where there were lineup changes like every couple of years, um, and it gave you time to build characters and situations that were really growing and funny. And like you said, she yeah she was a 
more of a writer than a star. Kind of like uh, somebody else who has a birthday this week, kind of like Al Franken. You know, he was barely on the show as a character, but he was a writer for a lot of those early years. All right, next up. May 19th, 1946. The tallest man who's ever wrestled, I think, Andre the Giant. Uh, no, not the tallest, but probably probably the most famous wrestler that ever lived, for sure. Uh, I mean, also, for all the Hulk Hogan's and Ric Flair's out there, there was only one Andre the Giant. He also was, was really well known for being in The Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. The one who keeps saying, like, that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. And it is generally when he's out in public or was out in public was gregarious and funny and definitely an interesting dude. My dad yeah, met him very, a couple of times and uh, really liked him. Oh yeah. Very well loved in the in the back room and all that. Whenever I was up in Montreal a couple of years ago, my friend Tom and I made it a point to go to Dunn's, which is a you know restaurant and bar where Andre the Giant famously drank 90 beers in one night. <laughs> yeah, my dad used to say he could put away a tremendous amount of food and drinks. Yeah. yeah. Big, big, big dude. Yep. Um, called everybody boss. Mm-hmm. That was his nickname for everybody, to the point where everybody called him boss. Like, if you hear the old school wrestlers tell stories, they uh, they don't call him Andre, they call him boss. Right, right, right. Oddly enough, he died young. I mean, you, we discussed this before about people with, uh, you know, growth deformities? Yeah, he, had, he, had, use? he had a disease called acromegaly, which means that... Yep. He can conti- his especially uh, more more visible, I guess, in his hands and his his shoulders and head. But he continues to grow and grow. Right. So he was only forty four years old when he passed away, and he actually passed away when he had returned home to France to go to his father's funeral. Sadly missed. Uh, Sadly missed. They say the only thing that was bigger than Andre the Giant was his heart and his personality. Uh, so moving on to May the twentieth, nineteen fifty eight. Principal songwriter and cutest little button in the world of the Go-Go's, Jane Weedland. Yes, she's a great guitar player, too. Great songwriter. All their hits off of uh, those first couple of records, man. The the song Our Lips Are Sealed Mm -hmm. was written by, it was co-written by her, and I can't think of the dude's name, but he was like the lead singer for the specials. You know that guy, Mr. Personality, like the most boring front person in the world. (laughs) I can't. Um, I, I've only ever seen the specials walk down the street in a still image. That's just as it. Oh. Nobody ever listened. I know who they are, but I've never listened to them. You gotta see videos. He just stands there, like picture Robert Smith of the Cure if he was on like heavy sedatives, like that. So, but they were dating, uh, him and Jane Weedlin, and the song "Our Lips Are Sealed" was about their relationship. Oh, okay. Yep, because uh, Fun Boy Three, which was an offshoot of the specials. They actually had the song first of Our Lips of Seal. Oh. And then the Go-Go's have their version of it, yeah. I want, Are the lyrics any different from one version to the other, or is it just that they both recorded it? If the lyrics are different, it's like one word here or there. Like, there, there might be some some phraseology that's different, but 99.9% of it, yeah. Yeah, it changes pronouns or something like that. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to go dig no, it out. No, it's not even that. It's not even that. It's like, he'll, instead of saying, is that a surprise... He says, is that such surprise? It's oh, like okay. that, that minor of a difference. Yo, yeah. All right. Cool. I'll definitely have to go dig them out and compare them. I haven't listened to the Go-Go's in a long time, so it's it's well overdue. Do you have a favorite track? I don't. I don't have a favorite track. Again, that's why it's so overdue for me to go back. Yeah. There is a deep cut on the first album called You Can't Talk in Your Sleep If You Can't Sleep. Mm-hmm. Or something along those lines. A really good song. Really will, good song. I will definitely cue that one up. Next up, 
May 21st, 1957. Judge Reinhold, who is not a judge, but has played one on TV, <laughs> as himself <laughs> named Judge Reinhold, uh, is a character actor who sort of had a very short time where he was like leading man material in some stuff in the 80s and early 90s, and has yep. since gone back into doing character work and voiceover work mostly. But for me, the, like the last time I remember seeing him in anything super noteworthy was when he played himself <laughs> hosting a TV show called Mock Trial with Judge Reinhold on Arrested yeah. Development. I think everybody's first like introduction to him is as Brad Hamilton in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Classic, classic movie. I think he was in Ruthless People, too, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. The, he was one of the guys who kidnapped Bette Midler in that movie. And... I'm being marked down! <laughs> and again, he was in a Beverly Hills Cop. He was in Beverly Hills Cop 2. He was yeah, in right. He was in all kinds of stuff. He was in a body-switching movie, too, with some kid. Like, for life me, I can't remember oh, the name yeah, of it. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. Vice Versa, I Vice, think Yeah, called, Vice Versa. Right? And there was and the reason I say I can't remember the name of it is because 85 of those movies came out in the same two years. Uh, so I was mixing them all up. Not the one with Dudley Moore. And wrapping up the birthdays on May the 22nd, 1859, Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle, who was the creator of the Sherlock Holmes character and series. Oh, yeah. And Sherlock Holmes is it's one of those literary characters who is probably never, ever, ever going to go away. Every generation has a Sherlock Holmes series that they end up with that becomes really, really popular. Yep. The original stories written in 1850s and 1860s, both done as serials and short stories in gazettes. I don't know if you've ever read any, like The Blue Carbuncle or... I've done audiobooks of some Sherlock Holmes stuff, but like like the really short stories, like the ones that take under an hour. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a ton of, of those because that was the audience yeah. for those, right? And it, there are novels that came later as Doyle's character got more popular and he expanded on some of the ideas from the short stories. I'm not sure. I don't think he was still alive when they started making the films, but they started making Sherlock Holmes films really early in motion picture history. They ended up really popular in the 1930s with Basil Rathbone and really popular again in the 1950s when they migrated to television sort of the same way that The Wizard of Oz did. In the 1970s as well, there was a revival, and then there was all the TV sort of cop and detective shows, which were sort of modeled on Sherlock Holmes. And then in the 90s and 2000s, we had the show House, which was right, which is based, based on, on Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes. Right. and and the Sherlock Holmes films with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Yep, that have been out in the last like five years. Uh, probably a little bit more than that, but yeah, mm-hmm. the, the the pandemic made time go by fast. It de- um, yeah, I don't know what day it is, let alone what year. Uh, here's some fun about uh, our friend Arthur Doyle. Is He was actually really good friends with Harry Houdini at one time. But Doyle's wife fancied herself as a medium and a psychic. Mm-hmm. And Houdini like debunked her and exploited her as a fraud. And that ended their friendship. Yeah. That's a funny story. That is a funny story. <laughs> you imagine that? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was also a judge in the world's first bodybuilding contest in 1901. Oh, I wonder if he. Uh, I wonder if he saw Charles Atlas. I think Ar- Charles Atlas was one of the guys that competed in those in those really early ones too. I wonder if he was uh, ever aware of the worst song ever. All right, Jeff, my turn this week. All right, your pick last week of Rod Stewart with the Temptations <laughs> uh, singing the Motown song. Yes, yes, uh, got me on a brain chain. And it led me to 
this. <laughs> the Fat Boys were a rap trio in the uh, early goings of the 80s, in the very, very early days of rap records and stuff. And they put out this single called Wipeout, featuring the Beach Boys. Here's that clip. Much like your Motown song last week, I don't think the Beach Boys recorded much on this. I think they just recorded one little bit, and then they just looped it for the rest of the song. (laughs) The song definitely has the feeling that you had a producer who was sitting between, like, somewhere in the middle of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Nashville or, like, Missouri or something. And he got a tape from... New York City, that's the Fat Boys, and he got a tape from Los Angeles, that's the Beach Boys, and he sort of Frankenstein them together into this hellacious song. It sounds like no one wants to be part of it, (laughs) but they're all on it anyway. (laughs) I'm really surprised that, like, did nobody make any phone calls? Like, all right, we want to do this uh, uh, mashup where we have the Fat Boys, they're going to do a cover of Wipeout? And we'll have the Beach Boys on there. Nobody said, hey, yeah, here's the thing. That's not a Beach Boys song, like even at all. <laughs> it's not. It's the Ventures, man. Wipeout right. is a classic piece of music. And as I listened to this awesomely bad garbage music in getting ready for the show, I couldn't help but think, like, some of the guys from the Ventures still alive. But this song was out. Right. I have to wonder if they were like, hey, all of, like, the drums that we were so cutting edge with, all of the surf guitar, it's all gone. They took it all out. Yeah, like some of the surf guitar is still there, but it's like manipulated. It's got the do 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 but it's manipulated to the point where it doesn't have that surf rock feel to it. They followed up this single with another mashup with your friend of mine, Chubby Checker, with The Twist. I don't think they really did too much after that. The Fat Boys, it was, you know, it was a bit of a gimmick kind of a thing, you know? Well, it definitely was. By the time the Fat Boys were being featured on these records, I'm not even going to say putting these records out, even though they came out on Fat Boys LPs. Yeah. But when they were featured on these records, this is when hip-hop is just starting to get pushed hard on MTV. And MTV is so big that the audience age span is greater than 18 to 35. And a way that they can get hip-hop artists on is to appeal to the broadest possible audience. And what better way than taking three non-threatening, kind of funny, three stooges-looking fat hip-hop guys who are non-threatening and sticking them with shambling corpse of the Beach Boys at that time featuring Mike Love and put it out. Because nobody's going to put this song on their favorite song list. But no one's going to turn the TV off when it comes on either. Right. And that's going to make it possible for, like, your MTV raps to start or to feature things like other rappers from the New York area, like Run DMC and Cool Mo D and some of those guys. And it's because they had that sort of comedic goofiness that made them palatable and opened the door for others. Without these guys doing this lousy record, I doubt that, you know, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince would have been as big or Marvin Young would have been able to come out as Young MC. 
These guys paved the way with them sort of weekended Bernies, you know, Bernies ing the the what was left of the Beach Boys at that time, <laughs> and then laugh right after that. Poor Chubby Checker, who was like, "Come on, baby, I'm a fundamental part of rock and roll," and he's just he's no get nowhere near the love that like Little Richard was getting at that time. He wasn't getting the mic love that Little Richard was getting. At that <laughs> yes, that's right. So, as I do, I went back and I listened to a bunch of Fat Boys uh, in preparation of this. and Because I never really listened to them at that time. I was, you know, more of a rock guy. And the early stuff is really, really, really low production. It's just a drum machine with them, you know, kind of yelling back and forth at each other. By the time we got to this album, Crushing, the production's a lot better where they're using, you know, actual drum machine instead of the uh, the human beatbox doing his thing. Right. One thing that jumped out at me while I was listening to this album is a song called Falling in Love. Now, mm-hmm. the Fat Boys don't really have a lot of deviation from their songs. They kind of all have the same flow. Like, it sounds like they heard one Run DMC song and was like, we could do that. <laughs> and... They yeah. they kind of all have the same, like I said, flow to it, right? So here's this song, Falling in Love. It's got this like kind of girl background vocal singing, and then there's this like kind of like smooth jazz kind of talking, like, oh yeah, baby. That's right. And then the song proper starts up. Cool Rock Ski and Prince Marky D just start like screaming at the top of their lungs because that's their style. <laughs> so it's all like, all right, baby. Yep. That's right, baby. It is as sexy as nothing. It's hilarious. It's like sexy, like, you know, just a friend by Bismarcky. It's, it's just it's, not. No, it's like you sexy, know. like Bismarcky, and then a pack of firecrackers goes off in your weight scan. Yeah. <laughs> I will say this. The Fat Boys parlayed their image into a couple of different things, which was, you know, doing the, the Monsters of Old Rock tour with uh, Mike Love and, and What's Left of the Beach Boys. But they also had a film career, and they made a couple of movies that were they were in Crush Groove. They were in, which was a great yeah. rap movie. And I remember seeing them in the movie Disorderlies in the cinema. I thought it was it was so funny. It was like the Three Stooges for 88 right. Minutes. It was a really funny, funny movie. Now we could, you know, we could take a piss on this song, and we could take a piss all over the Fat Boys left and right. I will say this though, as an adult, as you know, as I, I've I've got distance from uh, from the '80s, you know, because like I said, I was a rock guy. Music was very segregated in the '80s. It was very rare that somebody liked both, and I didn't, you know. But as an adult, looking back and listening to it, it's fun. The Fat Boys are a lot of fun. Oh, definitely. And and I like that that unlike like so much of the stuff that was contemporary, there was all like the like they were all in the same gang, and there was all this East Coast West Coast drama in hip hop that they were just goofy, yeah, goofy and funny, and made it made it made it easy to to enjoy the art form, mm-hmm. even if the art form was not the best represented by their skills. <laughs> all right, uh, I don't think the Fat Boys are in the Guinness Book of World Records, but. Oh, man. Yep. But our friend Keith, a.k.a. Ashrita Furman, he is in the Guinness Book of World Records for holding the most amount of world records. How many did our friend Ashrita hold? 
Well, I don't know how long his arms are, but I'm going to guess if he squeezed tight, he could probably hold like 35 world records. Wow. At once. That's a low estimate. <laughs> if you were on The Price is Right and everybody guessed like way too high, you would have won that one. Um, See? That's what happens when they have Mentos on there. How much were the Mentos? Ah, uh, it's $72.50. Currently, as of 2017, our friend Furman currently holds... 531 records. Are they just making categories up for this guy now? He totally is. Like, one of the things he invented and then subsequently set the record for, underwater pogo stick jumping. Underwater pogo stick jumping. Yeah. I wonder if, I wonder if how you petition that. They must be. They must get so sick of seeing his name come up in there. For, oh, here we go again. Oh, here comes Keith. Oh, now, now what? Let's see, what does he do now? Is he, you know, putting a bowling ball down his pants because no one's ever done that before, right? He's, oh, jeez. Yep. He could just buy his own beer. Can we just send him some coupons to go to the store and buy some Guinness beer? He, he topped out. He had At one time, he had over 600. But like I just said, as of right now, he has 531. What a dude. I guess if that's your life's work. Yep. Hopefully there's a prize for some of those. Otherwise, you know, oh his obituary is going to be incredibly long and unnecessarily red. Yeah. He's got enough laminated certificates in his apartment to go around. <laughs> Right? It's just cheaper to buy paint, dude. Yep. You don't have to use those to cover the walls. But yep. 531. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. Maybe they need to learn how to spell potato.